Welcome to the Global Medical Device Podcast, where today's brightest minds in the medical device industry go to get their most useful and actionable insider knowledge, direct from some of the world's leading medical device experts and companies. What are the five most common problems with your CAPA process? Well, good news. Mike Drews from Vascular Science and I dive into this topic on this next episode of the Global Medical Device Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Global Medical Device Podcast. This is your host, the founder and VP of Quality and Regulatory at Greenlight Guru, John Spear, and want to welcome a familiar voice and, and guest that has been on the Global Medical Device Podcast a few times before. I want to welcome Mike Drews, President of Vascular Sciences. Mike, good morning. Good morning, John. Thanks for the opportunity to have this conversation with you and your audience. Mike, you know that I circle these dates on my calendar because you, you and I get to have a good time when we, when we talk about uh, these various topics for the podcast, so you got it. Well, you're um, right. The regulatory and quality do not have to be boring <laughs> topics. I mean, I love it. I know you love it. And and uh, for those who don't love it, uh, I would encourage you to to you know maybe get a hold of Mike and and myself and find out maybe what we're drinking or why it's so exciting <laughs> to us. But uh, uh, you know, it's kind of a mindset thing that that I, I know that you know we've arrived here at different paths. But um, but it is great to talk to you and. Mike, I was hoping that today we can dive into a topic that I think a lot of people in the industry struggle with. And I guess broadly speaking, it's CAPA. And I thought we can maybe talk about some of uh, the common problems that people have with their CAPA process. What do you think? I think that's a terrific topic, John. And as a matter of fact, I'm looking uh, in front of me at a column called the five most common uh, product uh, problems with your CAPA process. And lo and behold, it was re- recently published by you. So yeah. why don't we start out with a, a broad question, John? Um, why is this such a, an important issue for this industry? And what was your motivation for writing this column? Well, I think it's a big, a big problem for the industry because... Well, I mean, if you just look at data from like FDA inspections year after year after year, companies are, are at least from the FDA perspective, still have a problem with how they manage CAPA. You know, what what are they doing? Do they have good processes and, and that sort of thing? So it's clear to me that that whatever message the regulatory bodies are trying to communicate to to medical device companies, for whatever reason, we as an industry are missing the message. And so, you know, I think there's a lot of reasons for that. I think there's a lot of challenges that, that we're faced with. But that was really the big motivation is, is let's figure out why this continues to be a problem. And, and let's, you know, uh, so to speak, let's maybe do a bit of a kappa investigation and try to get to the root cause, so to speak, to, to really understanding why this, this is a problem. Well, I think that's a great place to start, John. And actually, um, I one of my suggestions was to perhaps retitle this column. Uh, Does your Kappa process need a Kappa? I think that's a that's, yeah, that's a good that's idea. An interesting question. So let's let's now start to dig into the weeds because I know the audience wants you know much more specific, actionable items to uh, you know that that they can implement based on our discussion. So one of the comments that you make in your column is that. Uh, there's a lack of cross-functionality. In other words, mm-hmm. CAP is most often a process owned by 
the quality folks in the organization. Um, and I think you raise an interesting question. Does it make sense for quality to unilaterally make decisions as to what does or does not become a kappa? Um, yeah. What's been your experience on that, John, and what's your recommendation there? Yeah, it's um, it's interesting because I think that we all get so busy in the day-to-day activities or the functions or the roles that, that um, we serve in in our businesses that that um, over the years, I think the owner of Kappa has been inherited or, or taken on by, by the quality department. And I think there's, there's so much other things that the businesses are doing, like launching new products or focusing on manufacturing uh, of devices and, and so on and so forth, that, that these Kappa issues that surface, they become kind of afterthoughts or extra work, so to speak, that, that get added to the pile. And, and I don't think there's, there's complete buy-in within an organization about how important a cap is. I think CAPAs don't, CAPAs should be treated like a project. Uh, and with any project, I don't care what it is, you need to have the right people, resources, functions, any roles, responsibilities to effectively uh, define and complete that project. But I don't, companies don't do this. They, um, they just say Kappa is a quality problem, just like a lot of times they say product development is an engineering problem. Uh, and, and I think that that lack of cross-functionality creates a lot of issues because, you know, if, if left to a single functional group to make decisions about things, uh, they may make decisions from their limited view or limited perspective of the world, and, and it may not be good for the overall business and the the purpose of a cross-functional team involved with making decisions about what is and is not a kappa, and then once something is a kappa, uh, also have a cross-functional team in place to basically implement any sort of uh, corrective and preventive actions is important because it's more holistic. It's it's keeping you know a balance in place and understanding the different parts and pieces of the business. Well, I agree with you, John, and actually I think what you're saying about quality is something very similar to to what I've said about regulatory many, many times, and that is regulatory uh, should not be thought of as in in isolation. It needs to be integrated with R&D and manufacturing and all of the other areas, just like quality as well. So if we take that silo approach, whether we're talking quality or regulatory or something else, um, I think that, uh, unfortunately, we're setting ourselves up for even more problems in the future. We are. Um, so w- one of the recommendations that you make is that companies form a, a management review board yeah. and that it should meet on some frequent basis, perhaps even once a week. What's your rationale for making such a recommendation? Well, I think, you know, and, and I'll... Um... I'll come back and answer that question specifically, but I want to, the way most companies think about like their quality system is they're so focused on the compliance piece. You know, are we meeting the regulations? And you've, um, and I'll paraphrase uh, something you've said in the past. If you're just focused on compliance, that just makes you average. Uh, and, and, but I think so far, uh, so many companies are just, they're focused on just that compliance piece because, you know, for whatever reason, that's, that seems to be the driving force. In other um, words, the tick box on the form. And yeah, 
Yeah, exactly. You know, let's make sure that we address this FDA regulation and this ISO requirement, that sort of thing. You know, they're fo- so focused on compliance and, and this, you know, there's a, in the regulations and in ISO 1345 requirements, it talks about this, this thing called a management review. And, and I think the way so many companies have structured their business is that they, they look at that management review as a checkbox activity that happens once a year. You know, the, the more progressive companies maybe do it a couple times a year, but, but it's a moment in time and it's, they're going through their, their checklist. And do we do this? Do we do this? Do we do this? And, and they're not really getting a lot of value out of their quality system. And, and folks, if, you're just, if you just have a quality system in place to check a box on the form, you miss the point. And, and that's sort of uh, really gets at this, this concept of a management review board that, that is cross-functional. It has at least representation from quality and regulatory operations and engineering and might make sense to have it from a, from a business development standpoint and an executive uh, branch and so on. But it's it's cross-functional nature, and it meets on a more frequent basis. So that because things happen, you know, every day things happen in businesses, and and you need a group that can make informed decisions about the necessary uh, course of action. You know, does something need to be investigated in, in a more thorough fashion? Do you need to initiate some sort of kappa? So that's really the idea: is a team that's that's um, that's there to, to 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 represent all the necessary and applicable parts of the business but to be able to dive in and, and make decisions on a more frequent basis. Well, once again, John, as your audience, I'm sure, uh, appreciates, you and I are singing the same song just in a slightly different key. I'm uh, also a huge fan of having regular meetings via a management review board or whatever you want to call it. I don't really care. Although, to be honest with you, I don't like to be micromanaged when it comes to regulation. I, in fact, don't want the regulation to say this group should meet once a year or once a month or once a week. Mm-hmm. I think that should be left to the discretion of the company. For sure. For example, if you have a legacy device that's been on the market for, say, 20 years, and it's very well established and everybody understands the technology and it's a simple device and you really don't have that many problems, there's no reason why people need to get together and talk about it, you know, on a monthly or certainly a weekly basis. On the other hand, if you have a newer product mm-hmm. that uses uh, very new technology that's not well established, that does not have a uh, track record of, of uh, success and so on, then it obviously makes sense to meet much, much more frequently. So my suggestion, and I've made this uh, suggestion to, to companies many times, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on it, is in our quality system somewhere, we as an individual company define our criteria as to how often this board meets based on our particular devices that are on the market. In other words, whether it's once a year, whether it's twice a year, whether it's quarterly, monthly, weekly, what have you, I I want the company to be able to make that decision. And I also don't want it to be absolute. I also would suggest some sort of a provision or a caveat in there that if uh, in the process of, uh, you know, gaining more real world data from our device, that we start to see more problems, more complaints, especially if something is, you know, leads to a uh, a question of safety or efficacy, then we would have, a, you know, an immediate meeting or an extra meeting or a more frequent meeting. So I want the, the, 
that those those criteria to be spelled out in the quality system to be able to to do what makes sense. What what are your thoughts on that? Would that be giving companies too much latitude, too much flexibility? Do we really need to micromanage them and say, you know, we need to, you know, you need to have this meeting, you know, every X number of days? What are your thoughts, John? Yeah, I mean, I can see both sides. I mean, I can see that it's really more uh, appropriate to, to base the when this group convenes based on the needs of the business. I get that. Part of the the other thought is if if you get into the behavior, uh, you know, on a more routine basis, and again, weekly. Folks, you have to you have to own your business. You, when I say own your business, you have to know what makes sense for what you know you're doing and what what the needs are. Uh, you know, and and you'll know, but as Mike's suggesting, based on your products and and how your products are performing and and the issues that are happening, you'll get into a rhythm. You know, and I think getting into some sort of rhythm is important. Uh, and and if that rhythm is weekly, if it's monthly, if it's quarterly, the point is less about the frequency and more about the activity and more about actually owning and understanding how important this type of group is to uh, keeping your, your business or getting your business to be a well-oiled machine that, you know, instead of reacting to itch situations and issues that you're actually staying ahead of things, you're being more proactive in nature. And that's really the essence behind this concept of an MRB is be more proactive. And I agree. And just one small warning, maybe not such a small warning for our audience, is that uh, John and I are speaking now purely from a quality or regulatory perspective. And one of the recommendations that John makes in this um, uh, in this section is the importance of documentation and notes and so on. But just be aware from a product liability perspective that can be um, yeah. very problematic. Yeah. And perhaps, John, this might be a topic of a, of a different discussion <laughs> in the future. And that is how do we, you know, cover our butts from a regulatory or quality yeah. perspective while at the same time not overly exposing our butts from a product liability perspective. There's a very, very fine line there. Yeah. Um, okay, so let's move on to the next point that you make in your column. And again, something that I agree with strongly, and that is the tendency of many in our industry to be to be reactive as opposed to being proactive many of the corrective uh, sorry many of the the kappa efforts focus on the ca part of the equation and much less so on the pa start start of the equation as a matter of fact i've said at fda many many times we as an industry have gotten very good at the corrective action but not so good at the preventative action because many of these problems seem to happen over and over. And I've even mm-hmm. gone so far as to say that maybe CAPA is the wrong acronym. Maybe. Maybe the acronym that we should be using is PACA. Maybe. Preventative action, <laughs> corrective action. You know. So what are your thoughts on being more proactive, John, and especially in circumstances where you know, once we are aware of a problem – then it's kind of easy to sell to the organization, hey, we need to invest some time and resources to uh, to correct it. 
But what about when you don't know of a problem yet? Maybe your device is just getting onto the market. Maybe your device is still under development and it's yeah. not even on the market yet. And you're trying to think of anticipated problems and ways to prevent them. How do we convince our, our, our employers, John, to invest time and resources into solving problems that, that quite frankly, don't exist yet? Yeah, that's this is a big one. And, and this is, folks, this is maybe one of the more challenging parts from a CAPA perspective that um, that your organization may struggle with. And, and uh, in fact, I did a, I recently did a webinar on, on uh, CAPA and um, that the questions that came in, that was the most common question is how do I, how do I get my executive team to understand the benefit of being more proactive instead of reactive? And, and I, th- I think, you know, there's a lot of, I think this is a bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy that is manifested over time. Perhaps you're right. Perhaps if we called it PACA instead of Kappa, the self-fulfilling prophecy would have been that, that companies would be more focused on the preventive side or the proactive side. Uh, and I think another thing is, you know, for those who have ever been through an FDA inspection, it almost always uh, originates through evaluation of your complaints, which complaints by their nature are almost always reactive uh, types of situations. The event has already happened uh, by the time you, you document and learn about a complaint. And, and I don't know if those are, are things that have sort of propagated this this reactive focus or not, but I guess the the opportunity here is 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 really to try to shift that mindset. Uh, you know, people ask, "Well, should I? What should my ratio of of corrective actions be compared to my preventative actions? Is there a magic ratio?" No, there's not. There's not a magic ratio. Uh, I, I suspect that most companies it's probably nine to one corrective versus preventative, maybe even higher than that. But they I would like to see it the other way around. I, I would like to see it the other way around for sure. And and I think that businesses need to understand that, you know, dealing with complaints, it's not fun. It's not, it's not a good business practice, but it is something of course that we need to do. But what if, you know, what if we could develop a product that didn't have complaints? I mean, is that too, uh, too utopian uh, of, of a way of thinking to, to consider that we may not have a complaint or an issue with a product that we develop? I mean, but from an engineering perspective, I mean, uh, that's sort of my my objective, right? I'm 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 trying to seek perfection. You know, I realize that that might not be attainable, but but uh, what can I do from a from a product development standpoint? Is there more that I can do from a due diligence, you know, to understand the problems or the challenges of of the procedures that that my product will will be a part of, or the other products that might already be in the marketplace, if I spent more time understanding sort of the underlying issues that are involved, then I think during I, I can incorporate that into the design of my product to try to mitigate and reduce the likelihood that it, there's going to be uh, situations and events that happen. And I mean, it's, it's, I know it sounds a little bit altruistic, Mike, but it's really about really shifting that mindset. It's about, you know, paying attention to what's happening uh, with your products and evaluating data and information that you're learning about those products and going out and soliciting that kind of feedback uh, rather than just sitting back and waiting for something to happen. 
Well, John, whether the goal of no complaints uh, or adverse events or anything else is too utopian or not, um, that's an interesting question. But I definitely think it's, it's where we should be setting the bar. Um, I think we as an industry uh, can and should set the bar much higher. It might, we, we might not achieve it, but simply put, if we set the bar higher, we will achieve more than if we set the bar as unfortunately we often do so low that we just about trip going over it. Yeah. But I want to focus on uh, the particular challenge that I mentioned. It's one thing when you have a device on the market and there's some problems, there's some complaints coming in. Um, you know, in those cases, it's usually a no-brainer. You have to deal with them. But what we're talking about is the preventative actions. Oftentimes, in my world, being involved with devices that are not even on the market yet, you know, we have, as you know, and we've talked about, John, all kinds of regulatory requirements for testing, including usability and so on. But what we're talking about here is how do we address problems that do not yet exist? And you gave some some good uh, recommendations. Let me add one more to the to the mix, and this is something that your audience can consider whether it's an appropriate method in your own particular company. I'll leave that to each person. But a lot of people tell me that they fear the FDA, and I yeah. say, no, 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 no. You should not fear the FDA. You should have a healthy respect for the FDA, but you should not fear them. Your biggest fear should not be what happens when FDA comes in to do a manufacturing inspection or something. Who should you fear? I mentioned them earlier, John. You should fear the product liability attorneys yeah, because they can do a heck of a lot more damage to a company than the FDA ever could. And as I may have mentioned in some of our previous discussions, John, a, a growing part of my business is acting as a as – a, um, expert witness in medical device product liability cases. So perhaps some people in your audience, you know, you might suggest to your company, gee, you know, we need to do a better job of anticipating problems, not just because it's required by FDA, da, 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 but also, you know, to cover our, you know, what's in the future in terms of product liability. Um, something to, 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 to think about. Yeah. And, and okay. I think, well, just one one, uh, one quick thought on that too. I think sure. um, you know our 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 industry practice has been to rely very heavily on information that's contained on product labeling and instructions for use. And and, um, and you know, and I, I recall I, uh, this is probably in a podcast discussion that you and I have had before that. Um, Mike Drews doesn't read instructions, you know, and, and, <laughs> and, and I think others should, I think we as, as a device developers and manufacturers, we need to keep that in mind. Our products should be fairly intuitive to the end user. We should assume that they're not going to read that instruction for use. So, you know, and I, I think that's probably, you know, our, our approach has been so focused on, well, I'll just put it in the IFU or I'll just put it on the label and we haven't really addressed the issue, you know? Well, you know what, as I, as I thank you for my remembering that, John, because as I sometimes say, uh, facetiously, but also seriously, as a PhD in engineering, if I have to read the instructions before using a product, some engineer has not done their job. Yeah, that's <laughs> so, right. That's right. Anyway, uh, back to Kappa. So another of the issues that you uh, bring up, and I've talked about this many times as well, is are Kappas used too frequently or not frequently enough? In other words, I had a discussion uh, not long ago with a friend of mine who's 
the senior VP of regulatory and quality for a, a, a Fortune 50 medical device company. It's a very, very large company. I won't mention which one, but he and I were uh, best friends since graduate school. And we were uh, at dinner in California, had a discussion of what's the ideal number of kappas. That, uh, that a company should be having. You know, is zero kappas our goal? Well, perhaps that means that, uh, you know, our, our, our products are perfect, or perhaps it means that our kappa system is not working. On the other hand, if we have, you know, tons and tons of kappas, we run into the, uh, the, the, the possibility of the boy who cried wolf. You know, so many kappas, yeah. you get this sort of dilution effect, kind of like when you walk through a, a crowded shopping mall parking lot and there's a car alarm going off, nobody really pays attention because it happens so frequently. So so what are your recommendations to our audience, John, on how to decide what should be or alternatively should not be a kappa? Yeah, and, and there's there's a bit of art to this, uh, I suppose. Uh, I, um, I look at uh, a kappa should be uh, to address a systemic issue or a systemic opportunity. And, and uh, you know, I've seen so many companies kind of work at either extreme. The one extreme is where everything becomes a kappa. You know, you get a complaint, oh, it's a kappa, or you get a nonconformance, oh, it's a kappa. And if, if that's your practice, then then um, then that's you're probably overburdening uh, your your company, your resources through that. And and now you're you know you've got too many kappas open, and and you're you know all the other issues that we've talked about so far. Uh, are going to rear their ugly head even more so because now you've got too many things to to try to focus on and, and deal with, and you know reserve kappa for those those big deals you know those and don't wait for the things to happen and and I'll use uh, an example like maybe you find out that a a certain type of fitting uh, is not functioning the way that you thought you know and while that that issue may be systemic because it's happened multiple times and you're dealing with that from more of a corrective standpoint, use that as an opportunity to, to evaluate in a more proactive way or a more preventive way. Is that fitting used on other products in your portfolio or is something, uh, that type of connection point, is that something that, that's used at other points uh, throughout your, your products and, and your processes? And use that as an opportunity to, to be broaden the investigation to be more comprehensive in nature. So I guess, like I said, the the bottom line is use Kappa to address systemic issues that you're aware of, or to try to prevent those issues from becoming, you know, big, big gotchas, big, big problems. I think that's excellent advice for our audience, John. And I'll add one more suggestion to consider, and that is, as we all know, both here in the U.S. as well as in most places in the world, you know, our quality system requirements dictate that we have, you know, a CAPA process. But one of the things that uh, I see missing uh, or woefully inadequate in most quality systems that I look at in medical device companies that I work with is that they do not have criteria uh, mm-hmm. in place to determine what problems, whether it's simply an observation on a manufacturing floor or complaints from the field or whatever, what problems will create a kappa and what will not. As a matter of fact, um, one of my recent companies that I'm working with right now, 
they put that decision in the hands of the customer service person who's uh, taking the phone call complaints, and they're the person who decide, you know, which get passed on, you know, for investigation by engineering or quality or whatever, and which do not. And let me tell you, you know, this is not a criticism of people that are, you know, manning the phones, but that makes me very nervous. Yeah, I was going to say, how's that working out? (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's one of the reasons why they're having some problems, unfortunately. Um, But anyway, uh, the point is, I think, uh, I, I personally, you know, even as a, as a regulatory consultant, I do not look to the regulation to solve my problems. Right. I want the flexibility, just like we talked about before, to define those criteria based on my devices, my technology, and so on. I don't think it's reasonable to have universal criteria because, you know, on one hand, you might have a device company that's making simple handheld surgical instruments like uh, scalpels or hemostats or something. And on the other hand, you might have other companies that are making totally implantable artificial hearts. Yeah. So it doesn't make sense to impose the same criteria on both. I want that criteria to be established by the company. And I'll also steal a metaphor from the design controls, John, something that you and I are both familiar with, and that is let your outputs become your inputs. So these criteria should not be static on some uh, periodic basis, whether it's once a year, twice a year, more frequently than that. We take a look at the information that we're getting from the field, the real world data, so to speak. And we feed that back into our Kappa criteria. In other words, are there criteria that we have to add or modify in order to, uh, you know, make this a living document, kind of like a, a risk management file. You know, a risk management file is not supposed to be a static document, not something that you create once and stick it in a file and never touch it again. That's right. That defeats the whole purpose. So what are your thoughts on uh, on establishing uh, criteria and specifically giving companies the uh, not that not just the ability but the responsibility for establishing that criteria themselves. Well, I think that's important, and and I, th- I think we're so um, accustomed to treating symptoms, you know, and, and we can look at this and in, in our entire culture, certainly here in the West, you know, uh, pick on health healthcare for a minute. I mean, if you think about your healthcare, it's 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 all about treating a symptom. And I think if if we drill down into the way we manage our quality systems and uh, day-to-day business activities of medical device companies, including getting into campus, I think we're just we're treating symptoms. And and that's a good point, John. And that brings us to our last yeah. point in in your column, and that is root cause determination. Yeah. And you make a, a very interesting statement, and regrettably, I agree with you 110 percent. And that is. We don't spend a lot of time in actually determining what the real root cause is. I hear lots of people, especially engineers at conferences and other places, they talk about root cause and so on. But oftentimes, they're just skating around on the surface. They're just simply um, applying Band-Aids. And at least in my opinion, John, the root cause, if many, if not most problems, is actually uh between between people's ears <laughs> yeah it's the thinking that uh you know einstein said the problems that exist in the world today cannot be solved by the same level of the, the uh, thinking that created them 
Yeah. So we have to change our thinking. What are your thoughts about root cause determination, John, and how can we do it better? Well, the, the practice, the most common practice is, that I've seen is that there's an issue uh, statement or some sort of dis- description of, of the problem that we're trying to address. And most commonly what I see people do when it comes to defining root cause is basically a wordsmithing exercise where they're, they're re- rewording the issue or the problem statement and calling that the root cause. And seldom is that the case. I think we have to appreciate Politicians that. are very good at that. <laughs> yes, they are. Uh, and if we do that, then then we're going to be almost by de facto forced into just addressing symptoms. We, you know, something may manifest in one way, but but unless we truly understand how that thing even happened to begin with, the likelihood of, of us taking necessary action to to prevent this from happening again is is a, a snowball's chance. You know, it's just probably not going to happen. It's probably going to rear its ugly head. So we have to apply some some sort of, I'll say, methodology. And there's lots of tools out there and that are that are designed, you know, if applied properly, to help you with uh, a root cause determination. And there are plenty. And and I'm not promoting or advocating one over another. I do happen to like. The, this tool called the five whys. And, the, and for those of us who have ever been around a, a three-year-old, I think we can almost immediately understand the premise behind the five whys. And it, it goes like this. I mean, imagine a three-year-old ask you for, to go somewhere and you, know, you respond with uh, your response, no or yes or whatever. And then you get another question. And what's that next question that that three-year-old asks you? Why? Why? I mean, this this continues over and over again. Well, it's kind of that same sort of mentality as far as how the five whys operate. So you take that problem statement and you ask, why did this happen? And then, you know, and then you ask another, once you describe that, then you ask why and you ask why. And you keep doing this until you get to an actionable root cause. So whatever your, your uh, methodology or your approach, my advice to you to determine that root cause is to apply some sort of, of of methodology, some sort of activity to drill down to try to get to something that's truly actionable. Well, it's interesting you use the metaphor of the three-year-old, John, because uh, my grandson just celebrated his two-year uh, birthday just last month. So, um, and it's one of many reasons why I take the approach to regulatory and quality that I do. And that is, you know, one of my most important jobs as a, as a regulatory consultant is to ask questions, yeah. including questions that many people don't want to ask. And as your audience can appreciate, does not always make me the most popular person <laughs> in the room. But it is a job that, uh, that somebody has to do because if somebody doesn't do it in your room, I guarantee the FDA will do it. Yeah. And uh, so let's wrap this up because I know uh, we've been talking a lot about GAPA and it's a topic that you and I feel strongly about and we have a lot of experience with and perhaps we can continue it at a, at a different time. But sure. if you were to boil all of this down, John, what do you think would be the the most important takeaway or perhaps two most important takeaways that, you're, that our audience should come away with uh, based on our discussion today? Well, first and foremost... Uh, folks, I'm gonna. I'd be. I'm not a betting man, but I'd be willing to bet a decent sum of money. And keep in mind, I, I haven't even seen what it is that you're doing. But I bet your Kappa process is is busted. I bet it's. I bet it's broken. And I bet it. it do you we know, need be, a Kappa for your Kappa? <laughs> do you need? You probably do. And and um, you know, if you're not getting, you know, if you're dealing with the same issues over and over again. 
uh, that's, a, that's a symptom that your CAVA process is broken. Uh, if you're focusing on, on correcting and reacting to situations uh, more so than you are being proactive, then your CAVA system is broken. If, if you leave the decisions about what is and is not uh, a CAVA to a singular function such as quality, uh, that's a symptom that your CAVA process is broken. So I would encourage people to to really think long and hard about your CAVA process and you know, maybe as a, a good preventive action, whether you believe it is good or not, every year, why don't you issue yourself a kappa on your kappa process and and prevent this from becoming a, a systemic issue for your organization? Well, that's good advice, John, and I'll just add a couple of things very quickly myself. Uh, another thing that I see missing in many, almost all quality systems is on some periodic basis to take a holistic approach. In other words, we often look at these kappas in isolation, but coming back to what we talked about a moment ago in terms of the root cause, oftentimes the root cause is much deeper than that, and the same root cause problem may have led to multiple kappas. So what I suggest to organizations is on some regular basis, again, whether it's yearly or, uh, or twice a year, what have you, take a look at all of your CAPAs and all of your complaints in the aggregate and basically try to see the forest through the trees. Mm-hmm. In other words, look for similarities where similarities don't seem to exist. This is not a skill that everybody has, but it is a skill that you can develop in yourself. I really believe that. And one of the first steps to doing so is the conscious awareness of it. So that's takeaway uh, uh, recommendation one. The two takeaways that I would share is, uh, is very simple. Don't think about this as a kappa. Think about it as a paca. I think we need to be putting, as John and I both uh, talked about, more emphasis on the on the preventative side as opposed to the corrective side, because basically the, the more prevention, the less correction. That's, that's um, takeaway number one. And finally, takeaway number two, you know, I'm not going to use my words. I'm going to use Einstein's. Einstein, very smart guy, much smarter than me. Einstein said the problems that exist in the world today cannot be solved by the same level of thinking that created them. That's, you know, if we if we really want to do a better job, if we really want to solve these problems, we have to come up with not new regulation, at least not in my opinion, but new ways of, of thinking and of looking at the world. Yeah, so, I, I think that's a really good point. I, I think Einstein also said that if, if uh, you, you expect different results without change, that's the definition of insanity. So there um, you go, there you go. <laughs> Einstein was a very smart guy. Yeah. They so say if you're going to steal, you might as well steal from the best. Well, I, I agree. And Mike, I want to thank you again for being uh, part of today's discussion on the Global Medical Device Podcast, folks. If you'd like to learn more about how Mike Drews can help you with your regulatory strategy, he's the best. Uh, so I would encourage you to look him up, Mike Drews, D-R-U-E-S, and you can find him at Vascular Sciences. Uh, I, you know, he writes content for a number of industry publications, so he's pretty easy to find. And if you can't find him, reach out to me. I'd be happy to make a connection. And lastly, as, as we wrap up this podcast today, I want, I want to let you all know, hey, have you heard? Greenlight Guru has launched our new Grow product. What is Grow? Well, we have workflows designed for a number of post-market activities, including Kappa. So 
if your capital process is something that you're serious about retooling, uh, revisiting, reevaluating, I would encourage you to reach out to us at Greenlight Guru. Just go to greenlight.guru and it'll be fairly obvious what to do from there. You can click on a button to request a demo and we'd be thrilled to show you our Go and our Grow platforms. And this has been John Spear, the host of the Global Medical Device Podcast and founder and VP of Quality and Regulatory at Greenlight.Guru.